David, you got an interesting story here, a little bit different than my other guests, because you didn't have an NDE, but you've spent the last almost two decades studying uh, and interviewing, and correct me if I'm wrong, more than a thousand near-death experiencers at this point. So I'm really excited to, to dive into this. But before we do that, how did you get into this? Because it's not, you know, not everybody just starts researching people who died and came back. It's it's kind of a, a fringe topic, or at least it used to be. Well, one of the things I've learned from near-death experiencers, which of course I didn't know at the time that this all started, was that sometimes it takes a painful experience to make us change our ways. And my painful experience was chronic pain in the form of tendonitis. And it started in in the late 90s. Uh, and it started in my hands. And then it went to my elbows and my jaw and my feet. And in the worst of it, uh, in 2014, I had to start using a mobility scooter just to go to the store. Mm. Well, back in 2007, when it had been going on for eight, nine years or so, and sort of hit its worst point. I had been a Christian back then, and I came to a conclusion because I had been prayed for by several hundred people, maybe a dozen churches or so over the years, spent all sorts of money trying to cure myself and nothing worked. And I was miserable. And uh, I came to the conclusion, well, you know, it says in the Bible, you know, ask and you receive. So I must either be the son that God is embarrassed of, you know. You're, you're a bad Christian. I don't want anything to do with you, you know, disown me or more likely there, maybe there is no God, you know, and that was a very painful conclusion. And so in the middle of all this, when I was off work for a couple of weeks, when I just couldn't even function, I clicked on a YouTube video back in 2007. That was when YouTube was fairly new. It was hard to find near death experiences on YouTube. And it just came up to my feed and I clicked on it. And it was an atheist who died, saw the afterlife and returned. And, you know, I went, he doesn't, he's not giving any of the signs, you know, that he's lying. He seems really authentic. So I started looking into it and it just kind of snowballed. And then I said, well, I got to write a book about this because there were lots of individual stories that people talked about their experience. And there were lots of high esoteric spiritual concepts that unless you were into spirituality, you weren't going to be able to understand, but there wasn't a spirituality 101 out there. And then I started to interview people you know, I had one guy, it was a six hour interview and he said he could have gone on for a week and it was a fascinating six hours. So I just found that I loved the subject and then it transformed my life in almost every aspect in, in a positive way. And so, yeah, it was uh, an amazing thing to stumble across. And I don't think it was a coincidence. I think the pain was part of it. Um, and I think it was all done for the advancement of consciousness for my own better good. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and a lot of times I think that suffering um, in its various forms is a catalyst for spiritual growth, spiritual seeking. And, you know, it, even I can speak to that. You know, I wouldn't be doing this right now if I hadn't have had a, a very similar experience. About eight years ago, I got sick and, I, and I've been dealing with chronic pain since then. And, um, you know, as miserable as that's been, as and you can probably relate to, it's also, you know, I wouldn't be where I'm at now spiritually. I wouldn't be seeking probably without that. So I think good can come from the bad. And um, and that's definitely the case with your book. 
So before the before you started interviewing these people, what was your background before that? Were you were you in academia or something or some kind of scientific research? How come you decided to start researching and then put that into a book and, and do it in a sort of a more um, formulaic uh, process? I'm an engineer by nature, so okay. I studied mechanical engineering. I worked in the power plant industry, and I would analyze the economic feasibility of of these power plants, a very specific kind called cogeneration. So I was a very analytical person. Right. And I took that approach in my research. You know, I I studied, you know, the facial expressions and mannerisms that indicate a lie. And I don't see those in my interviewees in general. I think I only ran across maybe two testimonies the whole time where there were signs and then there's things in their testimony that didn't jive with the rest. And so I really didn't have a a set methodology. It wasn't um it wasn't like a structured research. It was just sort of piecemeal spending the vast majority of my free time, you know, researching this stuff. And of course, I left the corporate world in 2013. I thought well, I'm going to take a long break from work, which I did. I took a, a uh, about an eight year break. And I spent a lot of that free time just talking, you know, to people who've had near death experiences. I, I even, you know, my wife and I went camping in our little 17 foot trailer and we we're out in the boonies in the middle of nowhere. We park next to this bus and they invite us to dinner. And so we have dinner with this other couple and they're asking me what I do. And I'm, well, I'm kind of in the middle of the book, but you, you, you learn not to talk about it. Right. Because, you know, you get the raised eyebrow from some people. And if it's a religious person, they're going to contend, condemn you and say, you're from the devil. And the atheists are going to say you're delusional. and You're just making this up because you're afraid that we extinguish. And so I reluctantly tell them what the book is about and the woman's jaw drops and she says, I had a near-death experience. And her husband up to that point didn't believe her until we had a nice conversation. So, I mean, I ran across NDs from all sorts of sources. When I was buying a car, the guy, the salesman was missing an arm and he tells me, oh, I, I didn't ask him about it. He tells me, oh, I was in a water skiing accident. You know, I was holding onto the rope and I, I fell and the boat behind went over and severed my arm and I got to the hospital DOA. And they had to revive me. And I said, well, did you see a tunnel and a light and feel these feelings of love? You can." And he said, did that happen to you too? The guy had never told anybody about it. Mm -hmm. So we stopped the car stuff and he's, he told me his whole testimony. Yeah. And then they don't talk about it because they think nobody's going to believe him, you know? And in the seventies, as late as the seventies, you could be put in a mental institution if you talked about it. Right. And so they find somebody that believes them and they just open up about it. So I've had this wonderful gift of hearing all these beautiful testimonies that have been so transformative. And it's it's been a pleasure and a joy to be able to share it with others. Yeah, it's really important work. And I think that this kind of stuff happens a whole lot more often than people realize. I know that you're associated with IANS to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how much, but you know, for people that don't know, there are probably tens of thousands of people on there who have had near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences or spiritually transformative experiences, mystical things that can't be explained with modern science or anything that you know we know of as normal. So with all of these people that you've researched, what would you say are sort of the, the overlapping themes? I know you mentioned the tunnel We've, we've heard of, you know, people meeting guides and angels and things like that. What would you say is like the, if you're looking at like a Venn diagram where people, where, where there's a lot of overlapping consistencies? Well, I'm going to say the overlying theme 
for every single one of these without <laughs> exception, regardless of religion, their background, their cultural beliefs, their spiritual beliefs, their scientific beliefs, the overall theme, what they all talk about is that beautiful word love that can't be, it's so strong up there. It can't be described in human terms, but let's talk about the physical commonalities first and then go over some of the, the effects or the emotional commonalities. So physically, many of them talk about colors. They say there's colors there that we don't have here on earth. And I finally found out with one guy who was an artist and he said, as he's looking at this angelic being, he's seeing over 80 primary colors, primary colors. So we have three primary colors down here, red, blue, and yellow, that a mixture of those three colors make up all the colors we can see. They have over 80. So it is a, it's a buffet for the senses and people see these parks and gardens that are just beautiful. They describe um, being able to hear and see incredibly so they can they can hear people on earth from heaven and they can look at a mountain in in the afterlife that's a hundred miles away and see the petals on a flower and then see the molecules <laughs> their hearing extends more as well but hearing in heaven is not very useful for communication there there's a mind-to-mind -mind communication that is impossible to have a a misunderstanding um and just uh, a, a sense of feeling more real and more alive than they've ever felt in their life. You know, when you're in a dream, you think your dream world is real. And then you wake up and you go, oh, this is obviously the real world. This is the, the higher consciousness. Well, imagine taking one big step to this higher consciousness. Their emotions are more intense. Their, their thought processes are clearer. Um, they have... Uh, a various intense emotions that are far beyond earth emotions. So let's talk about that love. For instance, they say things like imagine the strongest love you've ever felt in your life and multiply it by about 500 or a thousand. And that's what it feels like to be there. One man said, how do I describe what it feels like to be there when you have no clue here on earth? You've never felt that. He said, imagine the hundred happiest moments of your life and put them into one moment you still don't come close to what it's like to be there. And then one gentleman said, uh, if you had a magic lamp here on earth with a genie, and instead of three wishes, you had unlimited wishes and you could wish for everything a human being could have here on earth, perfect health, you know, wealth, popular, a good loving family. You wouldn't, you wouldn't choose earth. <laughs> you would want to be back there. So uh, those are the commonalities. And of course, every near-death experience is very different because heaven creates an environment to make the person feel comfortable. You know, So if they were close to their grandmother who died, they're going to have the grandmother meet him. One guy, for instance, was a big fan of the apostle Peter. And so he was met by Peter. Now you can appear any way that you want in heaven. Even NDEs have seen these people transform to show them, look, I can change my appearance. Well, Peter probably appeared like he did on earth so the guy could see what he looked like. And so he said, yeah, I met Peter in heaven. He was a bit shaggy looking, <laughs> you know, which was kind of, I thought was hilarious. So yeah, every experience has its commonalities. And of course the overall all, all theme is the spiritual beings they meet with or God or Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad or, you know, any other figure, you know, relatives, whatever. The message is go back to earth and love people, love people unconditionally, love your enemies. That's a tough one for me. But that's the message. You're there to love.
And every time you choose the path of love instead of fear, every time you choose kindness instead of cruelness, you contribute to the growth of creation. Mm -hmm. And that's why our earthly lives is so important. What role do you think religion plays in all of this? Uh, I know that some people have, not a lot of them, but some people have bad experiences with like a hell or something like that. And some people, as you mentioned, uh, meet uh, some kind of spiritual master, Jesus, uh, Krishna, Buddha, something like that. Is that is that sort of the the mind's belief system overlaid on a thought responsive reality landscape, or or is there some kind of truth to all of that? What do you think? Oh, that's a good question. It's it's kind of both. So we are the exact opposite of what atheists believe. So an atheist believes that we are human beings pretending that there is a God. And in reality, we are little facets of God pretending to be human. And so just like the big creative benevolent source of life that we call God, we have creative abilities. And so one of the first things I learned from NDEs is thoughts are things. And it's a slow process down here. You know, the law of attraction, it's real, but it takes time and it's arduous. And you got to really work at it in heaven, it's instantaneous. So your belief can cause a hellish experience and souls are never punished to a hellish experience. They choose that for the benefit of their consciousness. So, you know, just like the heroin addict who will handcuff himself to the bed uh, and tell his partner, don't let me out for three days, you know, to get over an addiction, a soul may choose a negative experience to work through certain emotions or or to advance their consciousness. So it's kind of both. And there have even been quite a few testimonies where in, they're in the dark void, you know, before they see the light and go, go towards the heavenly realm. And it's kind of a, a space. So what they do is they, they create quantum bubbles or spaces. And within that space, anything you think or can imagine gets created. And people aren't aware of this and they start going to fear mode. What's going on? I'm all alone. There's dark. And the experience become, becomes very hellish. And then as soon as they calm down and say, well, I'm dead, there's nothing I can do about this. And they relax, then the experience becomes positive. Mm -hmm. And others find themselves in hellish realms, but those are subconscious choices by the soul. And they're not punishments. They're not permanent sentences, but about 95% have been positive. Mm -hmm. And okay. uh, yeah. And that's just the nature of, of the soul. So sometimes it decides to have a negative experience for the purpose of growth. Mm -hmm. So is that sort of the purpose of, of just pain and suffering in this life in, in general is spiritual growth in your assessment? Yeah, it's got probably a few elements or a few ways you could describe it. You know, there's a movie out called Father Stew, S-T-U. And it's a true story about a man who became a priest and he had this debilitating, uh, painful condition. And I think he died in his early 50s. And he talks about suffering. You know, suffering is an unusual experience. It's difficult. It can make one depressed, but it also transforms a person. It can bring humility and gratitude. And so negative experiences are part of the dance of consciousness which is always two steps forward and one step back. So when you want to get a car out of the mud and you can't just push it out of the mud, you got to rock it back and then push it forward. So when we dip down in the darkness, when we embrace fear and act out in fear, it propels us towards the light. And the creative benevolent source of all that is, that is infinite, 
and this is a hard concept for me to understand, but I've heard it from NDEs and from the other side of the veil. But for the love of heaven to exist, for that beauty beyond words to continue, there has to be a small part of creation, a small part of God that experiences the opposite of that. You can't have an infinite creator capable of, of anything if it says I'm limited. And by us, little facets of God incarnating into human beings and experiencing love and fear, the duality, having a choice. Because when you're all connected, like you are in the afterlife, you don't have a choice. If you're connected to your dog and you feel everything your dog feels and he feels everything you feel, the dog's not going to bite you. He doesn't have that choice because he's going to feel it. And you're not going to kick the dog. You're going to pet the dog <laughs> because you're going to feel everything he feels. But down here, we have the illusion of separateness. So now you can make the choice. I can kick the dog. And when you have the choice to act in fear and to act in the illusion of separateness and to be cruel or, or manipulative um, or unloving, and you choose the path of love, that's the creation process. That contributes to the growth of creation of God. We are literally, by these incarnations, we are holding the space for the love and beauty and perfection of heaven to exist. And that's why those in heaven, and I hear this from NDEs, they look at us as the courageous ones. We, we separate ourselves from the love. We separate ourselves from the unity. We forget who we are. We're, we come down here. We suffer. We experience pain and fear. We're afraid of death. The infinite, all-powerful piece of the creator that's existed forever being afraid of extinguishing when that's not in the realm of possibilities. That's, it's almost funny. <laughs> so that's what we're doing down here. It's an important job. And I was really blown away to find out, you know, I thought it was just what religion taught me. It's a test. I love you. It's a pass fail test. And if you don't obey the rules, well, I'm going to burn you in hell forever, but I love you. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't make sense. And now this kind of makes sense. We're doing this important job. So it was quite a revelation. Mm -hmm. Have you heard anything about pre-birth planning in your interviewees? Oh, yeah. I've lost count of how many times I've heard about that. So you choose your parents, you choose your family. So what there are generally, just like down here, you have groups of people that will do things together. You know, this is my group of friends. We could get together every Friday night. We go to the you know, club and dance, or this is my group I go on vacations with. That's what souls do. So you're up there in your perfect, comfortable home. Nobody likes to be home all the time, no matter how comfortable it is. You like to go out and have an adventure. But when you go out and have an adventure, you know, we're going to go on a, a one-week hike in the wilderness and backpack. Well, yeah, your legs are going to get hurt. You're, you're going to be tired. You might get a blister. You're going to suffer a little, but you like to get out and souls like to do that too. So they like to experience lifetimes and they will plan different roles. Well, we're all going to have amnesia. So this time, you know, you and me are going to be brothers and we're going to hate each other. And Next time, we're going to be husband and wife. <laughs> Next time, we'll be father and son. So you, they have all these, these things. And people choose the major events of their life. So anything major, like an illness or a nasty divorce or a new job that really helps you grow and develop, all those major events are planned. And some people say, well, that's control. We have free will. Yes, we do. The planning is like a vacation itinerary. Most people normally follow that vacation itinerary. It's pretty rare you decide to, to go to France for a week and you get there and you say, well, I don't like this. I'm going to Hawaii instead. 
that happens, but most people follow the itinerary. And then the details are filled in. And then, of course, you have some elders there in the planning. You plan as a soul group, and then you have some wiser spirits, and they never allow you to take on challenges that you're incapable of overcoming. So people like to take on challenges, you know. I want to be um, uh, paraplegic this lifetime, or I want to deal with depression, or I want to be a, a homeless drug addict. Um, and then some people will choose an easier life if they've had four or five tough ones. They'll say, well, I'm going to be a wealthy person who's pretty healthy all their life, doesn't deal with any emotional problems, kind of leads this charmed life. You know, the ones we call successful, <laughs> they're taking a breather because <laughs> they've had too many hard lives. So yeah, there's, there's planning. Sure. Yeah, I think it's great. Um, it's a great way to frame it if you're going through something difficult is to uh, think that maybe maybe I chose this to some extent. And and not only just randomly, but that there's a benefit to it, to me and to the collective uh, of, of humanity um, for spiritual growth or something. So that can really, uh, thinking about things like that has really helped me deal with some difficult stuff. And I'm, I'm sure it helps others and probably you as well. Um, what it goes beyond that actually, yeah, it's, it's, it's so, the people who choose a certain suffering, it generally becomes their greatest strength. Mm -hmm. So you look at people like Oprah, you know, she had been raped as a, mm -hmm. as a young woman, 14 pregnant, suicidally depressed. And what, what does she do? She turns around and becomes uh, a spokesperson for encouraging people and living good. Uh, Mary Kay of Mary Kay Cosmetics, mm -hmm. you know, good old boy system, couldn't get promoted, even though she was the best saleswoman and she, and her trainees got promoted over her and were her boss. And she gets mad and starts her own cosmetics business mm -hmm. and also writes a book about women starting their own businesses and becomes a billionaire. And even our mythical characters, Batman, his parents get killed in front of him when he's a child. Mm -hmm. What does he do? He becomes a superhero for justice and defending the innocent. Mm -hmm. So our greatest sufferings become our greatest strengths. I met a man who was, he had a really good balance between gently disciplining his children, but in a really loving way. He was always so gentle with them. And I said, how did you become such a good father? And he says, oh, it's real simple. My father beat the heck out of me for any little thing. Mm -hmm. I just got beaten and abused. And I said, you know what? I'm going to protect my kids. I don't want anybody to ever have to suffer through this. Mm -hmm. He gained this positive characteristic through his suffering. And Father Stu in the movie Father Stu talks about, you know, talks about that and how suffering transformed him. Yeah, I'm going to check it out. Um, so in your assessment, what is a, a human being? I kind of look at it as a mind, body, spirit complex, which is sort of taken from the law of one series. Um, That's a good, yeah, I like the law of one. Yeah. Is that uh, kind of how you would uh, describe what a human being is or do you have uh, something else? That's a real good description. And mm -hmm. uh, probably a good analogy would be like an automobile. Mm -hmm. The automobile will start and run on its own, like a, a human body will live. But for it to sort of be alive, the, the human being has to get in the car and drive it. And so the soul enters the human body and, and drives it. And so brain, the brain is more like a radio or a filter that tunes in the consciousness. So if you were to take a radio to a primitive tribe and turn it on and play music, they would think that the music was coming from the radio. And this has been done. And the, the primitives said, well, are there little people in there singing? <laughs> 
Well, the radio is just tuning in to consciousness. And we have the idea the brain creates consciousness. And that's just not the case because people come out of their bodies. Some of them are brain dead. Pam Reynolds, she had a aneurysm surgery. She was brain dead for an hour. And she described what the surgeons were saying and what they were doing. And she had this near-death experience. So yeah, it's a little different than what our scientists believe, but we'll eventually come to learn that you know, in the future. Yeah. And there, there's been a lot of studies on things like remote viewing and psychic phenomenon and, and things like that all over the internet. Uh, the funny you mentioned radio stations. I swear, sometimes I can even hear radio stations in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I, I yeah. mean, just randomly, maybe for like five or 10 seconds. I, I mean, it could be a hallucination, but I would, I would argue it's probably not when you uh, add it up to the other things. But um, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. So you mentioned amnesia um, for people that are sort of coming down here or into a human. Um, I've also heard that described as the veil. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you mentioned that we have this, uh, because of the amnesia, we have this illusion of separateness. Is that what you called it? Yes. And Okay. And then when you're in that state where you have an illusion of separateness, um, you have to make a decision for fear or out of fear or, or out of love, which is hard uh, when, when you're down here, for sure. Why do you think that we need that? Why can't we just remember, you know, because some people do seem to remember things and and they're doing all right. Um, Is it just more advantageous? What what do you think? You have to have the amnesia. You have to have, you have to limit your consciousness to have the experience. So we don't really learn anything down here. So near-death experiencers say, well, we have these physical lives as a learning experience. Well, that's true. And it's not, it's experiential learning. Mm -hmm. We don't learn anything new. And on the other side of the veil, you're connected to universal consciousness. Many near-death experiencers, when they connect to universal consciousness, they say, well, I didn't ask any questions. I didn't have any. I knew everything. I was everything in existence. And it's, it's, a, it's an amazing, indescribable, wonderful experience. But I'll try and give an analogy here. Um, no such man exists, but we're going to pretend that he does. There's this engineer. And when Disneyland in California was first being built, he was a young man in his mid-20s. And so he gets a job at the park and becomes the head engineer. And he's in charge. And he helps design all the rides. He helps, you know, all the decorations. He's help organizing everything. Now here he is, years and years later. He's he's eighty years old, and he's been on every ride Disneyland like a gazillion times. He knows every nut and bolt and how everything functions. If he goes to Disneyland, spends a day at the park, he might enjoy it, but he's missing something, isn't he? He knows more about Disneyland than any other person in the world. But if he really wants to experience it the way somebody is going to experience it when they go there the first time, he puts himself in the consciousness of a 10-year-old child, limited consciousness like we have down here. He doesn't know anything about the park. And he he is in a... uh, in the in the state of a 10-year-old child. So he's going to enjoy the park in a different way than an adult does. And he spends a day at Disneyland as a 10-year-old child going on all the rides for the first time. And it's an amazing experience. He learns something. You know, at the end of the day, he's an adult again, but he's got this experience that's unique of mm-hmm. being a 10-year-old child going to the park for the first time. And that's a lot different than his consciousness as the all-knowing engineer of Disneyland. Same thing with the creator. 
How fun is it for the creator that knows everything that can't be surprised to be surprised to see what he would do in this set of circumstances mm-hmm. as a limited portion of himself? And the creator experiences through that and learns through that. And that's what we're doing. We're part of the creator having these experiences. That's a great metaphor. And I remember being a 10-year-old kid in Disneyland for the first time. And, and it was beyond amazing. I mean, it was like a magical universe that was impossible. Um, so yeah, that that actually makes a lot of sense when you look at it from that perspective. Um, do, do you think that, so on that premise, we have earth and we have humans. Are there other earths and other humans and other things that you can incarnate into from your perspective? Yes. Um, one of the early things that I heard, and I remember it was in Howard Storm's book that I first read it, his near-death experience. Uh, but of course, I've heard it countless times now is he asked the question, are we alone in the universe? And the answer was kind of like, <laughs> no, the universe is full of life. And there are other dimensions with countless other universes that are also full of life. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of jaw dropping. And he asked to see these other beings and they showed this long procession of, they were humanoid at first and then they got different and different. And then they got so weird that he said, oh, that, that's enough. <laughs> so yeah, we don't, you don't start when you're a newborn child who's just learned how to walk. You don't start by walking on a hike up Mount Everest. <laughs> that's going to kill you. So you don't start on earth. It's the hardest place in this galaxy to have a life. It's the third hardest in the entire universe. Really? So it is a school and for advanced souls. You start mm-hmm. out on easier planets where they're already living in peaceful utopian societies and you have physical lives there. And you said, other are there other earths? There have been a few near-death experiencers, I think three that were shown alternate versions of earth. So our scientists' multiverse theory that there are parallel dimensions seems to be true, which I kind of find highly disturbing. (laughs) Is there a a version of me out there that's doing a better job than me? And is it the same soul or Mm -hmm. am I split? And I I don't know. I know we're multidimensional. So from the soul's perspective, you're living all your lifetimes simultaneously. But from the human perspective, you've got past lives, present life, and and your future lives that you're going to have. But your multidimensional soul affects the person you are today. So you get the five-year-old kid that, you know, you give him two piano lessons and he's playing Mozart. That's because he's got talent he's drawing from other lifetimes. So we have many, many lifetimes. Because Earth is so advanced, the souls that come here are more experienced, advanced souls. And the average human being, if you added up all their lifetime, lifetimes on Earth and other planets is over a million years old. (laughs) So we've been around a while. Yeah. And so that means that anyone who's here is an advanced soul. So, so even people that you might judge and think, oh, that person's, they're not educated. They're not awakened or whatever. That person is probably an advanced soul as well, or they have to be according to that. So that, oh yeah. So how many, um, if you even have the answer to this, how, how long would someone have to, how many lifetimes would someone have to live before they come here? And then how many would they live when they're here? Oh, I don't know, but a lot of the humans here have done several hundred lifetimes. Some have been around since the beginning when when souls first started incarnating here. Okay. But I, I don't know the numbers on that. Got it. Yeah, probably no one does. Um, you, you mentioned a more difficult planet or 
dimension to to incarnate into that this was the third most difficult one um it's hard to imagine a world that's harder than being a human i mean i can't imagine what that what that even looks like i mean what are you just enslaved from day one and you know i don't know i mean that happens here so it it has to be worse than that for some yeah probably you know i haven't heard details about those two other planets i just was told by one nde that there were only two other planets as tough as earth. They didn't give a ranking. So earth might be the most difficult. I don't know, but it's, it's among the top three. Okay. Um, if you think about technology, you know, if our technology was more advanced, they could do worse things. So (laughs) there's probably a planet that, you know, they can read your mind and punish you for what you think Mm. that I I know some aliens do have that technology to read your thoughts. Mm. You know, you could have thought police. That could be a lot worse. Right. Yeah. It seems like we're getting close to that in some ways. Um, what do you think the, so I think there's a lot of overlap between the ET stuff and the NDEs and just mystical experiences in general. Um, you know, I just interviewed a guy, Kevin Briggs, who, who's been having ET contact since he was a kid and they taught him things like astral projection and spiritual concepts about you know compassion and in love like you were mentioning so it's almost like an nde in a lot of ways um what do you think the the ets play uh what's their role in all of this um if you have an opinion well they're playing a role just like you have various roles in any community (laughs) you have your wiser more experienced people guiding the young and teaching the young and so the ets they in our galaxy, it's kind of run by, I, I hesitate to say this because it sounds so ridiculous, the Galactic Federation of Worlds. And they have a prime directive that they're not supposed to interfere with the primitive species till they've made interstellar contact. That sounds like I'm just copying Star Trek. I'm not even making up a good story, but Gene Roddenberry met a Pleiadian. So the when you become an advanced species and you learn to stop fighting each other and live with each other and with nature in harmony and you start cooperating, we, we haven't gotten there yet. We're just getting started with that. <laughs> uh, your job becomes to seed life on another planet. So the Pleiadians are our galactic parents and the Acturians are the Pleiadians' parents, our galactic grandparents. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Gene Roddenberry met a Pleiadian and then he was part of a group of trans channelers in the 1950s. I actually saw the notes posted online. Somebody posted the old typewritten notes online where they talked about the Federation and the uh, prime directive and, you know, transporters and that their technology. So he got a lot of his ideas from Star Trek. So when they eventually show up to meet us, we're going to be going, wait a minute, you guys are just saying Star Trek. You know, it was based on something real. Yeah, I think a lot of times um, what we see in film is actually inspired by something that might be real. Yeah, um, and they say that. The Pleiadian trans channelers will say that, that Hollywood always reflects real life. And of course, we've got various good alien groups. About 95% are good, and they're more advanced than the 5% bad aliens who are acting out, so they kind of keep them in check. But there's about a dozen species that are visiting us on a regular basis. The Pleiadians and, and the Federation are kind of protecting us right now. Um, and they're just waiting for us to wake up. We're not ready to meet them yet. All right. So if you had a neighbor across the street 
living from you. You've moved into this neighborhood and your other neighbors say, you see that guy over there? He spends half of his income on guns and, and military equipment and stuff. And if you knock on his door, he's not going to show up pointing a gun at you, but he's going to have it at his side ready to go. Would you go up and introduce yourself to that guy? <laughs> Probably not, right? Well, I just described the US government, right? Half of our money on military. And if a spaceship landed on the White House lawn, would they be met with smiles and handshakes or would there be a military response? Yeah, we're not ready yet. They'll meet us when we're ready, when we're not so barbaric. So they're just kind of trying to they uh, keep us from killing ourselves, you know. They'll they'll break the prime directive because it's more of a guideline than a hard fast rule. So, you know, if one group's trying to start a war and shoot a missile at another group, they might take it down. But their ships are here. They're camouflaged. We can't see them. And they're kind of watching over us. So the aliens do have a role in helping us out. You know, when you've got a two-year-old who hasn't quite learned how to not fight his other two-year-old friends in the sandbox, you kind of got to watch them and make sure they don't hurt each other. <laughs> so that's kind of what they're doing here right now. Right, except the two-year-old has nuclear weapons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Our tech, okay, this is something I've heard you make a good point. When the technology of a species evolves past their spiritual development, it causes a lot of problems, and that's what we have. And one NDE was told that had we not been so barbaric as to use nuclear weapons in a war, probably we'd have already be talking with our alien friends and getting help and so forth. But that yeah. you know, war and, and doing stupid things like that is a big step backwards in our development. And then we're, we're about 40 years away, well, probably about 50 years away from peace on earth. There's still going to be some more wars. No, no big world war where everybody's involved, but there'll be some major war still. And so peace on earth is a, a ways away, but it's close. We're really close now. It's an exciting time to be alive. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm really starting to feel like it's going to happen in my lifetime. Um you know, it, it seems like people are waking up to a lot of different things. They're evolving um, collectively. And and we don't really, you know, a lot of people are talking about, you know, when is the government going to tell us that the aliens are here and when are they going to land on the White House lawn? And it's probably not going to happen for a long, long time, but we don't need that to happen because we have a community disclosure. And if the society kind of like your your previous statement if this if our society evolves faster than the government which is almost guaranteed we won't really need them to tell us we'll just know already you know so we can just bypass it yeah and the way i understand that they do things they're very wise because they've done this before that you know the reason they have the prime directive like you don't show up to a primitive civilization and just share your technologies because they're going to hurt themselves with it they're going to weaponize it and they're going to they're going to blow themselves up so, you know, um, you got to show up at the right time and make sure they're ready. And yeah, um, we're, we're just too, <laughs> we're too messed up right now, but we'll, we'll become a, an active member of the community mm -hmm. soon enough. That'll be great. I can't wait for that. Um, I mean, we'll get off of all the fossil fuels and the big pharma and all that stuff will go away and have a new economic system or something and where people can actually thrive. So I think, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things that's happening, for instance, and you just mentioned it, you said the consciousness of the society is exceeding the consciousness of the government. Well, that's already happened mm -hmm. for the first time in a long time in history. You have the majority of people that don't want war. The Russian people don't want war. The Ukrainians don't want war. And it's these governments that are trying to drag us back in the old energy, old consciousness, and it's not working. 
-hmm. And that's going to continue. And what you're going to see right now is you're seeing the breakdown of old systems that served us for so long. And they are not going to serve us if we want to continue advancing in consciousness. You know, you need your training wheels on your bicycle when you first start. But if you leave them on there too long, they're going to hinder you. And that's where we are right now. And so these old systems will either change or crumble and be replaced with something better. And it's going to be a chaotic time. It's not going to be easy, but this is what we came down here for. We came down here to make the shift. You know, mm-hmm. if, if the souls that are human beings, that what I would call among the souls in heaven, the daredevil ones, the brave ones, if they had a business card, it would say something like transformer of worlds, you know, expert daredevils in going to rough environments and, and turning them into utopian paradises. Mm-hmm. And we're in that process. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, you know, when you look around at the world in, in the U.S. and everything and you analyze the institutions and the systems that we have, a lot of it is it, it's almost that as though indentured servitude or oppression even is built into the system. I mean, just look at the economic system. You have to you have to go to school and get a job to get go to college to get a W-2 so that you, you can have a place to live. And then you got to get the mortgage and the interest rates and all this stuff. And and it's almost built in such a way that it kind of uh, enslaves the population in a way. And and this is a lot of things, you know, not just what I just mentioned, but, you know, pharmaceuticals, big medicine, uh, um, agriculture, the food supply, um, you know, all of that stuff. So, yeah, a lot of things need to be restructured and it's going to, mm-hmm. it's going to be, um, it's going to take time. And it's also, as you mentioned, it's probably going to be disrupt or it's going to be um, chaotic in a way because, you know, the people that control these systems, they don't want to lose their power. You know, you look at, uh, you know, the oil industry, for example. Yeah. there Right now, what's going on is there was an old paradigm, which mm-hmm. was true back then, you know, a thousand years ago, what you had to do, and this was normal and expected. And if you didn't do this, it would be like the attitude and culture and society was like, what's wrong with you? Right. <laughs> You're going to just get abused. What you would do is you would attach yourself to a group of people, whether it was a city or an army or you know something big like the Roman Empire, and you make yourself as strong as possible and you take from others to survive because mm-hmm. there was very limited resources back then. Well, there's a new paradigm, but the consciousness hasn't shifted to that paradigm. And the new paradigm is this, with our amazing communication abilities, you know, and the talk we're having right now, with our technology, with our computers, with our mass manufacturing, actually with 1950s technology, we would have plenty for everybody. And if we really, really cooperated, you know, we didn't make products to be disposable. We made them to last, you know, things like that. We would have a 10 hour work week. We don't have to fight each other to survive anymore. Cooperation is going to replace competition, but we're not there yet. And so most of the problems are being caused by this illusion, the lack of things, scarcity, keeping us in fear. And the globalists have to do that because if they don't, well, they lose control and they're losing control and they've been losing control. They're going to lose the game and uh, they keep getting more and more brazen, tightening their grip, not realizing that the more they tighten their grip, the more people slip through their fingers. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're seeing now. And it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. But that's it's exactly going to be done on an individual basis. You know, mm-hmm. we mentioned first contact. They're not going to make first contact with a government. 
what the Pleiadians are going to do is they're going to turn their camouflage off until more and more people see them. And then when they're common and everybody's seen these UFOs a gazillion times, and it's obvious they're not here to hurt us, they'd have done it already, right? Then they're going to show up to, so as not to cause a panic, you know? <laughs> and it's not going to be the government that leads us into the new world of love. It's going to be individuals, people like <laughs> you with a show like this, spreading a, a message of love and hope. I hope so. So you mentioned that you suffered from an illness before um, and, and that you've healed mostly uh, up to this point. What are some of the things that you've done to to heal that or in, if anything, or has it been just automatic? Well, I'm about 80% healed and I don't know exactly what caused it, but I, <laughs> I sure do have a few good guesses. Now, I lived in the big city in LA for 40 years <laughs> and round about 2015, I started getting this tug, go out, be in nature. And my physical condition was getting worse and worse and worse. I spent from 2016 to 2019, I had to use a mobility scooter, even like just to go to the grocery store because I couldn't be on my feet that long. It would hurt. Wow. And I got this tug that got worse and worse. And finally, in August of 2019, right before COVID, I moved out of my tiny home, got rid of everything I could. And I moved into a 17 foot trailer and I lived on the road for two years before settling here in Texas. And that's when my healing started. And I got to believe that part of that is nature because I've heard from near-death experiences that nature has a very powerful healing energy. You know, when, when near-death experiencers see nature, sometimes as they're going through the tunnel or on their trip towards heaven, they look back at earth and it looks the exact opposite as the way it does at night. At night, the cities are bright and then the nature parts are dark. Well, they're looking at it with their spiritual eyes so they can see aura, they can see the energy. And the nature parts are very bright and the cities are dark. And from some of the cities, they, they said they hear a low buzz or a groan like a... So being out in nature had to be a big part of it. The other part of it is I, I had a nervous breakdown. And it when you have to work through a lot real quick, that's what a nervous breakdown is. It's mm -hmm. huge progress really quick. Mm -hmm. And when I came out of that, everything about my life changed. And then I got, I got married to the love of my life. I moved out to the wilderness. I d adopted a much slower, relaxed lifestyle, you know, got out of the corporate world and the hustle and bustle. And really, I, I heard this from a Pleiadian channeler. Uh, she said, if you're serious about your spirituality, if you really want to evolve, you have to disconnect yourself from the frequency of chaos and drama and fear and negativity that the world is putting out. And of course, the news, not watching the news or not even watching what's going on in the rest of the world is a big part of that because the news is a well-crafted fear report. It's mostly negative and it's always going to have a spin. And if they don't have anything negative to the report, they're going to take something neutral and give it a negative spin <laughs> because they sell fear. So when I disconnected myself from the rest of the world, I, I often don't know what's going on in the world. I, I live only in my world. And the people I interact with every day, that's what I focus on. Mm -hmm. And I think doing that got rid of that chaos and, and fear. And the, you know, the human consciousness is not to, meant to take on the drama and chaos and suffering of an entire planet. And that's what the news brings us to our living room. So it was two months into the war between Ukraine and Russia when I heard about it from somebody else talking about it. I mean, I, Trump got arrested, I guess. And I didn't even hear about that for a weeks, <laughs> you know, so I overheard at the cafe. I'm like, they arrested him? <laughs> so, yeah, I, don't know. I didn't know. And right. in my world, you look at the news and, and you know, you, you say the world's falling apart. Mm -hmm. well, 
I look at my world and it's pretty peaceful. I don't see stabbings and shootings and there's no protests in the streets or burning down of buildings. And my world's pretty wonderful. Yeah. And you know what, what you focus on because we're creator gods, you get more of. So it's really important to focus on good stuff. And I think that had a hand in my healing. I changed my attitude. And the way heaven wants us to deal with suffering, which I wasn't good at, I'm better at it now, but I wasn't good at it back then is, you know, you're supposed to kind of get through it with this uh, humble dignity and and try and find joy in it if you can. Mm-hmm. Well, during my healing process, uh, when I got about 90% healed, I had a little backslide and I was limping around for a couple of months and I thought, oh no, it's back. And I said, I'm not doing this again. I'm not going to deal with the pain and be depressed. And so my attitude became, I'm just going to treat it like a nuisance and I'm just going to smile. And if I have to use tricks to help myself, you know, when I'm showering in the morning, sing a happy song. Mr. Blue Sky is one of my favorites or zippity doo dah. Try and sing a happy Disney song over and over again and stay depressed. <laughs> you know, it's hard to do. And so, uh, yeah, I think all that was part of the healing process. Yeah. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I still live in a city and when I can get out, I, I go to nature and it's, it definitely has a healing effect on your mind, on your body, spirit, everything. And, and the cities are just crazy, you know, not to mention the electromagnetic pollution or uh, static electricity and all that stuff that's just all around you, you know, different Wi-Fi. Uh, I was looking at what happens to uh, human blood under a microscope when it's exposed to uh, constant Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and all these wireless signatures. Yeah, and it for us. it's not no. So and then and then you add the news on top of that, which, like you said, is is a fear report. It's it's not the news. It's just it's a psychological operation to get you to, you know, live in fear so that you, um, you know, take a certain action uh, or, you know, or like a piece of cattle that makes ad revenue. So, yeah, I, yeah, I saw what the uh, Pleiadians call Wi-Fi. The Pleiadian channelers, I've heard it a couple of times. They call it WeFry. Oh, wow. That's really bad for us. And like right now, I have Wi-Fi turned off my router. I have direct connections to my computer. I have no mm-hmm. Wi-Fi in the house. And I, when I stopped, when I turned the Wi-Fi off, I immediately started feeling better emotionally, not physically. Mm-hmm. I started being having a more positive attitude every day. I don't know. It, it might have been a coincidence. I don't know. But it's not good for us. Yeah. No, I, I think it makes it's probably not a coincidence. Um, you know, I do the same thing. I have a hardline Ethernet connection as well, um, just for that reason. And um, you know, it's scary when you think about it. The same thing is happening with the cell phones, and when you people put it up to their ear, you know, right next to their brain, it's probably not a good idea. Or then they have it in their pocket next to their organs, probably not a good idea. Um, so I just use speakerphone from now on. But um. Yeah, I, so I stopped watching the news a long time ago. I think back when, um, you know, everyone, people are still going crazy, but back when they were really going crazy. And, um, you know, it, it's funny. There's a guy I follow named Peter Sage, and he says that if something's important enough, it'll find you. And it's turned out to be true most of the time. I mean, if there's something really serious that's going to happen, a hurricane or something that actually affects me, I'll find out about it from somebody. And and believe me, people will tell you, you know, because they're all watching the news. So if something really needs to find you, they'll tell you about it, um, even if you don't want them to. Um, <laughs> yeah, sometimes I got, I didn't want to hear that. <laughs> right. Yeah. I want to yeah. know about the horrors of the world right now. So 
I know that you wrote one book. Uh, I can't wait to read it. It's on my list. I've got so many books on my list. It's going to take me a while to get to it. Um, and then, of course, all the people I interview, I want to read their books. And they, and some people have three, four, five books. So it's going to be difficult to, to get to all of them. But I'm slowly building up a library in my house. So um, it'll it'll be there at some point. Um, so where can people find that book? I know it's probably on Amazon. I know it's on Amazon. Um, and then what else are you working on, if anything? Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, godtookmyclothes.com is the website, and you'll see links to the places you can buy it. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and it's it's on Nook and Kindle and all that. I think the Nook and Kindle versions are quite a bit cheaper. And if you're not sure about you know reading a book like mine there at godtookmyclothes.com, there's a download. You can download the first two chapters, see if it's for you, you know, that way you don't pop 12 bucks for something you're not interested in. And the entire version's there in Spanish. It's considered a different book. So the publisher doesn't have the rights to the Spanish one. Um, and a link to my spiritual counseling is there. So I do spiritual counseling for people who've had near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, spiritually transformative experiences. And I had put work on my second book aside. I told my guides, I'm not going to work on the second book anymore until the first book makes money. Well, yesterday I got my uh, quarterly check that put me over the edge. I finally broke even. So my next book I'm going to be working on, it's called The New World of Love. And it's going to be a lot more speculative because the first book is straightforward. This is what these hundreds and hundreds of near-death experiencers said. And the second book, I have to speculate on the future. And there's only a small percentage of near-death experiencers that are shown the future, <laughs> which is going to be a bright future. So it's going to be a book about our future and and you know the the new world of love that's coming this this beautiful utopian earth of peace and love and yeah we'll still have our problems and differences but we'll be more like a healthy family you know the brothers and sisters may argue and they may even get mad at each other not talk to each other but they don't pick up knives and guns and start killing each other right which is right kind of where we are now so mm -hmm. yeah that's going to be a tougher project but i should have that done in a year or two hopefully okay yeah writing a book is no small feat Oh God! You know, when I started to write my my first book, I thought it was this much work, and if I knew it was this much work, I wouldn't have done it. So thank God right. I didn't know. <laughs> and then the, the other thing that you never know until you write a book is you really get tired of reading your own book. I've read it like twenty times, and it's yeah. a good, in my opinion, it's a good book. I wrote it. Of course, I'm going to think it's a good book, but <laughs> yeah, I really got tired of reading it. It's like, oh God, I got to read it again. <laughs> so, yeah, well, you got to proofread it and then proofread it again and then just oh. keep doing it. And you still got mistakes and you got to do it a third time. And yeah, that's rough. Well, and I'm, I'm glad that you're putting it in Spanish too, because um, I'm pretty sure that if Spanish was a country, it would be the largest one in the world. And, you know, Spanish the rest speakers, of the world, yeah. yeah, Spanish speakers, you know, every, not everybody speaks English and everyone else needs to get this message as well. So that's important. Um, and, and I can't wait to hear more about the uh, the future uh, NDEs with the future projections in there as well. That sounds really interesting. Um, have you started the research on that yet? Oh, yeah. I've heard from near-death experiencers about future events. Okay. So, I don't know, five or six have talked about, you know, when I hear something hundreds of times, like the love of heaven, the importance of treating other people with love and kindness, compassion. Mm -hmm. I just, I hear that. I've probably heard that over a thousand times. I believe mm -hmm. it 100%. When I heard it only four or five times, I tend to be a little apprehensive about <laughs> believing it, but I've heard, oh, probably five or six people talk about a splitting of the United States in about 40 years. 
mm-hmm. and maybe an invasion of China here mm-hmm. uh, shortly after the split and uh, a war. And then 2070 kind of being the very beginnings of peace on earth when we say, you know, we, we can't keep fighting each other. Mm-hmm. And of course, I've heard about the distant future about, oh, 150 years from now, people living in these societies of around 100 to 150 people. Mm-hmm. And you always look at the future and you think, oh, we're going to have this technology and press a button and breakfast appears. It's kind of going to be the opposite for us, at least in the near future, where we're going to discover that biology is the best technology. People will live in these very, they're going to look primitive, but they'll they'll have high technology, but it'll be limited. You know, like you won't have doctors, the community, if there's somebody injured or, or ill, they, they gather around with the power of consciousness, they heal them <laughs> and they grow fruit. And, and vegetables by communicating with the plants. Hmm. And so we'll be this very peaceful sort of nature-based society with a beautiful, clean, restored earth with humanity in a higher level of consciousness being the caretakers of earth instead of abusing it like we are now. It, I mean, the the change is going to be so drastic. I mean, if you think about you know, 150 years from now, go back 150 years no electricity, no communication. I mean, drastically different world. And the same thing's going to happen. Like if an alien who's never seen Earth showed up today and looked around at the place, he would say, oh, you guys are a mess. You're trashing your environment. You're fighting each other. You're burning down your city. You're not going to make it. <laughs> and then if they, that same alien came back 150 years from now, his jaw would drop. What did these humans do? How did they clean up their act so fast? Wow. They really got things together. They Holy cow, they turned this place into a garden paradise from a hellhole. How? You know, it's going to be an amazing thing. Well, when you make changes that fast on a, on a cosmic scale, you know, 150 years is a long time now, but that's a fast change for the civilization. It's going to be chaotic. It's going to be difficult, but we're making a lot of progress fast. So I think it's worth the pain and suffering. I think so. And, and, you know, that, that actually makes a lot of sense because when you look at um, agrarian societies before the industrial revolution, that's kind of how they lived. And then we had this, all this mechanized equipment come in and mass production and it over-industrialized everything. And now everything is sort of, you know, manufactured and cookie cutter and it has no soul to it. And now, and we've hurt the environment and ourselves with that. And now we almost have to come full circle but then take the technology that we can and then integrate it with that nomadic lifestyle or the small tribe lifestyle, and then, you know, build a more sustainable environment and ecosystem. So yeah, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's going to be a beautiful thing. It's going to take a lot of hard work. I've heard about like in the future, they say that they're going to attack the problem of the great Pacific plastic patch. And all that garbage in the ocean. They're going to have to clean the environment from GMOs, which are really bad from us, for us. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, the Pleiadians have the technology. They could, they could clean up our entire earth in, in less than 30 days, but they're not going to do it for the same reason you don't clean your child's room for him. He's not going to learn. Mm-hmm. And they'll probably you know, help us along and so forth. But yeah, we're going to, we're going to have a massive effort, but we're going to do it. We're going to get responsible. We're going to start stop fighting each other. And when we start cooperating, you know, peace on earth, that's just going to be the first step. Then things are going to really get interesting. Yeah. It's going to be a a really bright future, but we're at the point right now. If you can imagine, you know, your, your family 
extended family has had this big mansion where you all live and it served you for generations, but now the wood's rotten, the plumbing is leaking, uh, the electrical's faulty, you know, the roof has got leaks all over the place. You just can't patch it up anymore. And you got to bulldoze it to make way for a bigger, better, newer, more modern house. The day the bulldozers are knocking down that house that has served you for so long, it's going to seem like the end of the world if you don't know what's coming next. And that's what we're seeing in the world right now. We're seeing a crumbling of old systems and old ways of doing things. And we don't realize that this is part of the process of making way for something new and better. There'll be a new constitution in the United States. I've heard about that from heaven. It's coming. Mm-hmm. And we just got to be patient. And then, of course, the most important thing is not to fear because the globalists use fear to manipulate even those who are spiritually awake. And so we have to always make the changes by being that change. So, you know, don't vote for somebody in office who you think is going to do the right things. You you know, you do them yourself. Mm -hmm. Now, if you believe in the environment and you believe that carbon dioxide is a threat, we'll reduce your carbon footprint, you know put solar in your house, drive an economical car, recycle, do all those things. The change is going to be happened by individuals making the changes and the government is going to follow mm-hmm. to the point where someday, and this is the craziest thing I've heard from heaven, someday there will be integrity and honesty in, in politics. The, the politician that gets elected is going to lead from love. He'll never say a negative thing about his opponent. Right. Well, you that know? might, that and, might and take- he'll have integrity because people will demand it. <laughs> That'll be awesome. That might take 200 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've just probably lost half the audience. Oh, this guy's crazy. <laughs> He's obviously off his rocker. That's never going to happen. It's going to happen. Corporations yeah. are going to advertise based on integrity. Look how good we treat our employees. Mm-hmm. Look how good we are to our customers, especially when one has a problem with our product or service. Look how careful we are to not harm the environment. And the ads will be honest. Mm-hmm. They're going to compete and have ads based on that because the people will demand it. We're not there yet. We're still in the me first mode. We're right. still like the two-year-old grabbing the toy from the other two-year-old because I want it now. Yeah, And we'll get past that. It just takes time. It, it, a child doesn't just skip their teenage years. <laughs> they got to go through it. We've got to go through this. We're going to have 50 probably tough years and another 20 or 30 when peace on earth starts of just getting things going and working things out, but we'll get through it. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, um, I think really the only thing that can create this uh, cooperative, loving society is an evolution of consciousness. So, you know, a lot of people, we all push our political beliefs or or this economic system or that, that economic system or this technology or that technology. And the truth is, you know, we're not going to be able to live in the world that you just described until we all decide to stop fighting each other. And we all put our differences aside. Even if we have a good reason to fight someone, we just don't do it. We forgive them, you know, and, and that's going to take an evolution of consciousness. And it's going to take people on an individual basis, pulling themselves out of fear and choosing love, um, even when maybe it doesn't make sense in certain instances or when, when it isn't beneficial to them. Absolutely. And the recognition that we're all connected. So I heard about this from heaven that we will find a way eventually to measure quantum energies and manipulate quantum based multidimensional energies. Electromagnetism and gravity are two of those, Mm -hmm. but other ones, and we'll have zero point energy and we'll have clean energy. And when we can see this quantum multidimensional energy, because the love of God is measurable, 
It's mm-hmm. a it's an energy. You know, it's a consciousness, a living being, but it's also an energy. And when we figure out how to measure that energy, they say the scientists will say, "Oh, we are all connected." And then they'll realize the truth, which is what near-death experiences have already taught us, is that when you bring hope or joy to just one person, it affects the whole. When one person suffers, the whole suffers. Mm -hmm. And so when we're aware of that, we're not going to allow 50,000 homeless, mentally ill drug addicts to be in the streets of Los Angeles. That's low-hanging fruit. With just a little bit of money and a little bit of effort, we can bring those people back into a good life of joy and happiness instead of hopelessness, which is where they are now, mm-hmm. which, which is why they've given up. I mean, those people will be swarmed once humanity realizes that you can't harm another person without harming yourself. You can't help another without helping yourself. That's going to change our priorities. When I learned this just in my near-death experience research, it changed the way, the way I dealt with other people a lot in a positive way. And so when we're all on board with this truth, oh, it's going to be transformative. It's going to be an amazing world. Yeah, a world where we're always looking out for each other. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to need, you know, your uh, your towing service or AAA because if you get stopped by the side of the road, you're going to have people coming to help you right away. <laughs> because that's me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's another part of me that's stuck right. on the side of the road. <laughs> you know, I mean, when you look at another human being, you're looking at another facet of yourself. Hard to believe from our human perspective, but it's true. No, I think it'll happen. And, uh, and that's probably a good positive note to, to end all of this on. Thank you so much for coming on, David. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on the show. It was a pleasure being with you here today and talk about these beautiful ideas.